Hey, there's a sermon outline in your bulletin there. I'd invite you to pull it out and open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 2. You'll find that on page 1498 if you're using a book rack Bible. And I hope everybody's got a Bible open or a notepad or an iPad or an iPhone or a smartphone or whatever you need to get to Matthew chapter 2. We want everybody's eyes on Scripture this morning. So far in our study in the book of Matthew, we've learned that Jesus is the rightful king over the throne of David. He is the rightful heir. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. He possesses all the credentials for being the rightful king. We have also seen that he's Emmanuel. He is God with us. So the beauty of Christmas is not seen in the infancy of Christ, but in the deity of Christ. And then last week we saw in the search of the Magi that this Jesus, who is the rightful heir of the throne of David and the God-man, Jesus Christ, he is also worthy of our worship as the Magi found the Lord Jesus Christ in the house where he was in Bethlehem. They laid their gifts before him and worshiped him. So that's what we've seen so far in this book. And today we look at one more portrait that is actually going to be bringing us back into the Old Testament to some prophecies made about Christ in this early movement of his life. This is an amazing text we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to suggest to you that when this account takes place, Jesus, the boy, is probably between 16 and 20 months of age. He is... uh, He's just a small child, and yet suddenly, out of the beauty and mystery of what we know as the Christmas season, the shepherds, the magi, the birth of Christ, comes the stirring and uh, crushing reality that there is a plot underway to take the child's life. Jesus is suddenly in peril, and because we know that Jesus is the God-man, he was human, 100% human, Had Herod carried out what he intended to carry out with the boy Jesus, we wouldn't have a Savior. Now, I know theologically that's kind of crazy to think about, but because he was human, he needed to be rescued from the plot of Herod. We're going to read about that this morning. But most importantly, what I want you to see from our text this morning is how Jesus, in terms of his fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, becomes for you and me today, right now today, on this day, He becomes our source of help, our source of hope, and our source of healing. We're going to see those three things. It's a simple outline this morning. Those aren't the words you're supposed to write in, by the way. (laughs) Some of you just started writing. I said, no, no, no. But we're going to see how he is our help, how he is our hope, and how he is our healing. We're going to see that in our text today. Now, it, 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 it comes as no surprise to those of us that study Scripture that that the wickedness of Herod in his plot to take the Christ out is foreshadowed by a greater enemy of God who is Satan himself. And if you go back in the pages of Scripture, you know that every time God forwards his movement of plan or redemption, uh, Satan is there doing something to unravel that. 
And he does that from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, you just follow, it's a trace that goes all the way through. And that's why some of us, when we kind of feel like we need to move in the right direction with the Lord, or we feel like God's presence is coming upon our lives, we want to search for Him, follow Him, why literally all hell breaks through in our lives too, because there's this enemy of our souls that loves to dismantle what God wants to do in your life. There's a spiritual warfare that's at stake all the time. And we see this right here in Matthew chapter 2, right in sort of the, the, the crescendo of the Christmas story. We're suddenly thrust into this terrible reality of Christ being in the crosshairs of Herod and behind Herod, Satan himself. And by the way, this text is an interesting one to me as well because it's the last word we have before Jesus steps into the pages of the gospel with his ministry. There's like 30 years that are silent from this point, from where we end today, where we pick up next Sunday. So this is an interesting text. It sort of leaves us with where, where uh, Matthew wants his readers to think about who this Christ is as Jesus steps into his baptism and then into his public ministry. So things are going to get really heated up and excited in these next uh, few weeks as we continue to see Matthew introducing us to the rightful king. Okay, so with that as a little introduction, maybe a little longer than it should have been, let's go to chapter 2, verse 13 and follow along. Now, here's what you're going to look for as I read. You're going to look for prophecies from the Old Testament. I want you just to kind of see them. If you have a Bible or somewhere you can underline, I want you just to underline when you come to the prophetic scripture there because those are going to be the hinge marks of our message this morning. Okay, we're going to see what they have to mean for us. Verse 13. When they had gone, the they, there is the Magi. When they, the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. All right. Now, first of all, a couple observations. Did you see the prophecies there? Did you see those? Okay, maybe you made a little note of those. Did you also see how many dreams Joseph has? Wow, I mean, this guy was lit up with dreams from the angel of the Lord. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, so God was communicating to Joseph. God was doing something to protect the Christ child. 
And, and right there, verse 15, the first prophecy comes out of Egypt, I called my son. That's a reference to Hosea chapter 11. We'll get there in a minute. The second one in verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. That comes from Jeremiah 31. We're going to look at that. And then this last one, verse 23, he will be called a Nazarene. Well, I don't have a reference for that one, so I'll need to explain when we get there. What I want to show you in these simple movements of Jesus' early life is to find proof in what, who he was and what he came to do. And what I want to show you first in verses 13 through 15 is that in a timeless principle, we should come to Jesus if we need deliverance because this prophecy, this first prophecy, is all about our deliverance. In this first movement, apparently upon the Magi's departure, Joseph has a dream and God used dreams with Joseph and in this dream, the angel of the Lord says, get up, Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Now, here's, here's the problem. Herod is looking for Jesus in order to kill him. Remember we said last week, Herod searched for Christ, but his search was veiled in hypocrisy. He didn't want to worship the Christ. He wanted to take the Christ out. And, and uh, history records his penchant for cruelty and abuse. And it's, it's a crazy, crazy thing. So Joseph gets up, he packs up his little family, and he heads off to Egypt. No one exactly knows where they ended up in Egypt. There was a Jewish population in Egypt. Egypt's about 70 miles to the southwest of Bethlehem, where, Beth, where uh, Joseph and, and Mary and the baby Jesus, or the young boy Jesus at this point, maybe 16 to 20 months of age. Um, and why not go to some other region? I mean, you, they could have followed the Magi's trail. They could have gone back to Persia. They could have gone north into Syria. They could have gone to other places that were safe, but they chose Egypt. Why did they choose Egypt? Well, you could go through all kinds of reasoning and arguments, but Matthew tells us why. Matthew says the reason why they went to Egypt, whether they knew it or not, was to fulfill a prophecy that had come in the book of Hosea, the 11th chapter. And in that book an amazing little prophetic book that speaks of Israel's disobedience to God. God says to the prophet Hosea, he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now in that passage, it goes on to say, the more I called him, the further they went from me, saith the Lord. So in Hosea's prophecy, it's, it's a reminder of what God did to deliver his people, his son Israel. Now, I know this is, we're going to wade into a little deep water here, but for any of you that are familiar with the Bible, we, we, we see some interesting parallels with what's going on here because there's this other Joseph that one day went down to Egypt too. Do you remember that Joseph? Back in Genesis chapter 39 and following, there's the Joseph, which was the son, one of the sons of Jacob, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And you know that Joseph and his brothers didn't get along and there was a little bit of a problem there, and the brothers decided to do away with Joseph, and they first they're going to kill him, then they decide, no, that's maybe a little too harsh, let's just sell him into slavery. They sell him to some people, and those people take him down to Pharaoh in Egypt, and there he is, and he's going through his problems, but he sort of rises in the ranks in Egypt, and he becomes someone that's like Pharaoh's number two guy, right? 
and Pharaoh uh, discovers, he's got some dreams, and Pharaoh discovers through Joseph's interpretation that there's a great famine coming. So Joseph says, let's store up for seven years in the bountiful years, and then when the famine comes, we're going to be okay. And all of this is a, is a story within a story, because what God's doing is he's actually saving his people, Israel, by Joseph going down into Egypt. And so you know the story. He's down there and he finally reveals himself to his brothers who come down. They come down for food. They come down for sustenance. And that whole thing is amazing. And Joseph says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God was working this story out behind the scenes to save his people. Now watch this. Remember, then all of Joseph's family comes down and lives with Joseph. Pharaoh gives him a great place, gives him land. And then that Pharaoh dies. And then Exodus chapter 1 comes along and tells us that when a new king arrived, when a new king came on who did not know about Joseph, and Joseph and his family are gone, and yet the people had populated, the Jewish people were populating that region of the world big time, and it says in Exodus 1.8 that when he came to power, he forced them into labor, he oppressed them, and they cried out to God. And you remember when Moses went to Pharaoh, Moses is the deliverer, remember? I mean, boy, this story gets really even more complex because Pharaoh tries to put away all the Hebrews by killing the firstborn sons, right? And the midwives disobey Pharaoh, and they let the boys live. And one of those little boys was pushed into a little basket of reeds. His name means basket of reeds or taken out of the reeds. His name is Moses. And he was pushed down the Nile River. And Pharaoh's daughter found him and takes him into the home. And he becomes a, a prince in Egypt. And then he discovers who he really is. And so God takes him out of Egypt, sends him back to Egypt. And you remember what he says to Pharaoh in Exodus 4. He says, God speaks through him and says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me. So in the Old Testament, we've got this picture of Israel being the son of God. It's God's adopted son, as it were. God is working his redemptive plan through Israel. Now we know that now... All that has shifted, praise God. We know that God's redemptive plan is not focused now in Israel, but focused in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have this parallel going on that in the simple movements of Jesus' life, we've got this beautiful picture of God res rescuing his son, delivering Israel out of Egypt, and we find that portrait all through the Old Testament. God is our deliverer. He sends us out. He calls us out. Now there's something else here that I would just reference. Egypt had long been known for a, as a place of idolatry and evil governance. And there may be a veiled reference here back in Matthew chapter 2 that where God says, out of Egypt I call my son, there may be a veiled reference to the fact that all deliverance all of us who have been delivered from a life of sin, a picture of God's mercy and grace over undeserving sinners, all of us, in a sense, are sons that have been called out of Egypt. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of the way God loves his people. And we see this in the Israelites. We see this in his own son, the Lord Jesus. And we see this in our lives as children of God, that we too have been called out. We have been delivered. 
Now, I know that that's maybe, okay, we're just a few days after Christmas. You're still, you still got the Christmas kind of food hangover. You know, there's lots of, but, but you got to focus for a second and realize that this is the way God does it. God delivers his people. And this picture of Jesus fulfilling the prophecy that out of Egypt I will call my son is a beautiful fulfillment not only of Jesus coming out of Egypt by Joseph, his earthly father, and Mary, his mother, but also a picture of our lives being delivered too. Now, how many of us would agree that there's a lot of folks in this world that need to be delivered? I mean, God's a deliverer. And every day I open the newspaper, I turn on the news, and even through this period of time, especially through this period of time, there is so much darkness all around us. There's murder and hatred and anger and nations against nations and economy that is upside down and diseases, and it just goes on and on and on. And let's just stop for a minute and realize, why did Jesus come into this world? Why did God send Jesus? To deliver us from our sins. To give us new life, not give us a better life, give us new life. And that new life is a better life. But I don't come to Jesus for a better life. I come because I need a new life. I need my sins forgiven. I need a a heart transplant. God is our deliverer. And this is a picture that we have right here. Our relationship to Jesus is what determines our own deliverance. Listen, if you've never come to Christ, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you have not been truly delivered. You might have some behavior modification going. You might feel better about yourself because you're in a different social place in your life. But listen, deliverance only comes when the Lord Jesus Christ who is our deliverer, comes to set up residence in our heart. And that only happens when we as undeserved sinners are given the knowledge of Christ, and I've been quoting this the last couple of weeks because I've been meditating on myself, where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 6, he says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness, that's the creation account, has also shown his light in our hearts, that's a conversion account, so that He might give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You and I are not delivered until God gives us the eyes to see Jesus Christ, our deliverer. And that's why I love Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, speaking of this deliverance, he says, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us, and on Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. Here's what happens when you become a Christ follower. God delivers you from the penalty of sin. God continues to deliver you by giving you power over sin, and one day He's going to ultimately deliver you by giving you freedom from all sin. It's a constant deliverance. It started the day you got saved, and he's still delivering. And I'm so glad about that. God has continued to deliver me. Deliver me, in all, deliver me from my own attitudes that are wrong. Deliver me from myself sometimes, where I start getting too big, you know, headed about me. He saves me. He delivers me. He's constantly putting me back in my place. He's constantly showing me where I need to be with him. This is the deliverance of God. It is not just a one and out. It starts at salvation. It continues to go through our lives all the way to sal- all the way to the point where we go to heaven and we're with Christ forever. He is our deliverer. So we come to Jesus if we need deliverance. That's the first thing I see in this old text. The second thing I see 
is that we need not only just come to Jesus if we need deliverance, but we need to cry to Jesus if we face despair. Now back to the text, verses 16 through 18. Herod finds out that he's been outwitted. The Greek word means deceived. The Magi purposefully said, we're not going to tell that guy anything. So they went home a different way. True to form, Herod flies off in a rage and orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who are two years old or under. Now this goes back to verse 7 where he had pulled the Magi in and asked what time the star had appeared and all this stuff. Now I will say that history, this is interesting, Josephus, which was a Jewish historian at the time of Christ or after the time of Christ, who wrote about Christ and also wrote about Herod, does not mention the slaughter of the innocents. Josephus does not mention it. There's no record in history of this actual event taking place. And so some people have, led, have been led to think that Matthew made this part of the story up. Now, because I believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and that it's trustworthy, I would argue that, well, in effect, in actuality, it did happen because we find it in Scripture. And the fact that Josephus didn't write about it could be arguably uh, argued for many other reasons. For example, Herod was a guy that murdered lots of people. And it might have been that this was not the biggest thing that hit the news of that day. I don't know. Just a suggestion. Herod was so crazy that on the day of his inauguration, he killed all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And on another account, because he wanted to honor one of his own people, he, he killed a bunch of other people. I mean, he, he is known for his murderous plots against people. Why Josephus or other historians didn't include the slaughter of these innocents, maybe the number was just not that big. One would have been too many. Are you following me on this? But maybe in the scope of that day, it wasn't as big a deal. I don't know. But I do know this, for any parent that that happened to, it was, it was the life-changing moment for them. I've stood with parents of two-year-olds who lost their lives. And I know the crushing, not by experience, but I know it by being with people who have lost two-year-olds or under, how terribly crushing it is. And I'm looking around, I'm seeing faces of people who have been through this experience. This is a terrible, terrible experience. And by the way, for those that this did happen to, the, the little silver lining in this is that if my theology is correct, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, like in Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 19, Ezekiel 16, that children are known as the innocent ones before God. And God calls children those that belong to Him. I love that. That means that those children were not only the first martyrs of the Christian faith, but they were also instantaneously brought into the presence of Almighty God. I I find comfort in that. I remind parents of children that pass that those children went straight away into the presence of God, not because of sentimentality, but because of what the Scripture promises. Are children sinners? Yes, they are. But the Bible says children are not culpable. At what age do they become culpable? (laughs) I would not put an age on that. I don't know. (laughs) But God knows. God knows when a child becomes someone who understands his sinfulness, understands he needs a Savior, and God opens, shines his light on his heart to give that young person the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He does that. We can trust him for that. But children who pass 
before that place of knowing instantly into the presence of God. Maybe you know somebody that's lost a child. You can comfort them with those words. I've stood with parents who brought those words from Scripture to parents who found a new release of comfort in their hearts, knowing that their little one was with the Lord. Now, this was to fulfill, verse 15, what the prophet said, a voice is heard in Ramah. So let's take a look at this prophecy because there's something beautiful here that I don't want anybody to miss, okay? Now, if you've been snoozing for just a minute, time to wake up, okay? Are you ready? Jeremiah 31. Go in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. If you're using that book rack Bible, page 1226. All right. A voice is heard in Ramah. Mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. What's Jeremiah talking about? Jeremiah prophesied to the, to the southern kingdom. And Jeremiah is in advance saying that when God comes and brings judgment on you people, he's going to take you off into captivity. The Babylonians are going to come in and they are going to take your sons and your daughters. They are going to kill. And they are going to uh, uh, steal your children. And they are going to take them out of your country. And they are going to place them in their own country. This is known as the exile. You can see this all the way through the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. And what the prophets warned of, in fact, took place in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes over the land, the southern portion of that land, once already taken by Assyria in the north, 722, 723 B.C. And here we have God through Jeremiah saying, this is what's going to happen. Your people are going to die. Children are going to die. And there's going to be this giant exile of people taken out of the land of Israel. And you know where the staging point for that was? It was in an area called Ramah about five miles north of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is picturing Rachel, whom you remember is the mother of Joseph and the mother of Benjamin, who died at Benjamin's birth. And Jeremiah is picturing Rachel as one who, in a sense, is turning over in her grave, saying, now the children of Israel are being dispersed into the nations. Now the children of Israel have been harassed and broken by the wicked kings of of." Persia and Babylon, and they're being taken away. It's like an unconsoling mother. How could this possibly have taken place? My children are no more. And I think Matthew, recognizing what took place among the children that were killed in the vicinity of Bethlehem and that area around Jerusalem, would have thought of, oh, this fulfills what the prophet was saying in Jeremiah 31. But here's the beautiful thing that I don't want you to miss. Laced into this horrific moment of the children of Israel being killed and exiled, watch this, comes a word of incredible hope. Look at verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. That's amazing. 
What God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah is that even though there is weeping and great sorrow and mourning, there is also embedded within this reality, God says through Jeremiah to the people, there is also hope. There's hope in the midst of the despair. And that hope comes because God is not finished with Israel. He's actually going to not only send Israel out, but bring them back into their land. And not only is he going to bring them back into their land, he's going to take out their heart of stone and he's going to give them a heart of flesh. He's going to take the covenant of the law and he's going to bring the covenant of grace. Verses 31 and following of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. It's all about the covenant of grace. God gives this beautiful portrait, this beautiful picture, this metaphor of terrible despair and searing loss. And he says, stop weeping. There is hope in your future. I love that personally because I think there are some of us here today who in our own lives have become so despairing of life, we refuse to be comforted. That may have come through the death of a son or a daughter, a death of a spouse, a death of a dream, a death of a business, a death of whatever it is. There could be something in your life today where you have just said, I refuse to be comforted. And you become so comfortable in your grief and your sorrow when someone comes along and tries to encourage you out, you push them away. You are a hardened person who have become known as someone steely hard and pushing others out. And in fact, even when the Holy Spirit of God comes and says, I've got a future for you, you bristle and you push away. God is saying in Jeremiah 31, and let's go back to Matthew chapter 2, God is saying in the midst of this, there is hope. There is hope. On your darkest day, there is the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. First of all, I need to hear that this morning. And I would suggest if you don't think you need to hear it, you need to hear that this morning. But there's someone perhaps here today who's been holding on to your grief, holding on to your sorrow, holding on, if I may say, to your self-pity, where God is saying, would you release that and trust me to bring hope because I am the hope. I am the hope of the world. I was not born. I did not bring my son into this world so that you would stay in your hopelessness, but so that you would receive the hope that only I can give you, that on the darkest day or season of your life, you can know for sure that there is hope in Christ. He is not only our deliverer, but he is the one who brings hope in the midst of our despair. And there's somebody here today that needs to embrace that with all their heart. Is that you? Don't push it away. Because the hope of Jesus Christ is so real. It allows you to smile, even though life is lousy sometimes. Even though things are difficult sometimes. We can smile and we can say, praise God. We can trust Him. We can lean into Him. Which brings us to the last little movement of this passage. And that not only should we call on Jesus when, when we need deliverance, and not only should we cry to Jesus when we are in despair, but we need to cling to Jesus if we feel despised. We need to cling to Jesus if we feel despised. Verses 19 through 23. Now, you may not see this readily in this text, and I'll do my best to help you see this and what I've come to see in it. 
and it's not original by me, but if you know your Old Testament, when you come to that statement, he will be called a Nazarene, you know that there's nowhere in the Old Testament where any prophet said that, that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. It's not there. So you go, "Uh uh-oh, what does that mean? It might have been that Matthew is rightfully pointing out to us one of two things. One, it could mean that this was oral tradition and that the prophets were known to have said this, however, it was never written down in Old Testament Scripture. Well, that's plausible, but we can't prove that, so we'll just push that aside for a minute. I think more probably it's the reality that Matthew, as all the other prophets of the Old Testament, understood that when Messiah came, he would not be overwhelmingly heralded as the Savior of the world, but he would be despised and rejected. Why do we say that? Well, first of all, we know that that was the case. But the area of Nazareth, where Jesus was born, where where Joseph may have thought originally, I don't want to go back up there. Let's raise the child in Bethlehem, a place of regal dignity, David's house, the house of bread. But instead, the angel of the Lord showed him because Archelaus, chip off the old man's block, Herod, was going to do his job, and and Joseph didn't want to be anywhere around Archelaus, so he moves up to Nazareth. Maybe not his first choice. Why? Because Nazareth was known for a place of reproach. When the Jews first, when Israel came into the land of promise, the the tribes of Naphtali and, and Zebulun did not clear out as the other tribes had cleared out the wicked influences of that region. Naphtali and Zebulun continued to war with the people that lived there and the many idolatrous practices that the people in that region lived out. And in fact, so much so that this whole area of northern Israel became known as a place of derision. Nobody really wanted to be from the north, from Nazareth, especially if you were a Jew, especially if you were a rabbi, especially if you were the called Messiah. And that's why when Philip introduced Nathaniel to Jesus, I think we found the Messiah. He, where is he from? He's from Nazareth. And you remember what Nathaniel says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> now you know why. Because no one in, in Jewish belief or faith thought that anybody good could come from that region of the world. And isn't it interesting, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks when we get to Jer- uh, Matthew chapter 4, this is the very area that Jesus decides, this is where my ministry is going to start. The darkest area. The area where people have the most need. Oh, I can't wait to get there in a couple of weeks. This is where Jesus starts. He was despised. He was rejected. You know, we oftentimes think of Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, great, great thunderous title, you know. Jesus of Nazareth is a title of derision. And nevertheless, our lowly Savior comes And our lowly Savior says, listen, if you've ever felt despised, I don't know who's here listening to this this morning. Maybe you feel despised because you're a Christ follower. You've been getting ribbed and jostled at work because you follow Jesus. Maybe you live in a home where people make fun of you because you follow Christ. Maybe your husband tells you you're an idiot for coming to this church or whatever church you attend. 
Maybe your wife constantly bothers you because you want to be a man of God and follow Jesus. Maybe your kids are pestered or bothered by your faith in Christ. Maybe their faith in Christ is being ridiculed because you as a parent or you know of a parent who is who is trashing their kids because they're choosing to follow Jesus. Listen, if you follow Jesus sooner or later, you are going to feel derision. I promise you that. And if you don't feel it, you're probably not living out your faith in sort of an outer way, in a way that people would see that you are truly a follower of Christ. I don't mean that we should be obnoxious. We should never be obnoxious. We should be the most loving, most honoring people anyone ever meets If somebody were to define a Christian, they ought to define it according to our lives, the people that they know that follow Jesus Christ. But even when you live the life in in a way that is honoring to God, in a way that is not reproachable because of sin and stupid stuff in your life, you are still going to be at the brunt edge of people's derision. That's just the way it is. And when that day comes, just remember you're in good company because that's what Jesus was too. Remember the prophet. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. Another psalm, the portrait of Jesus Psalm 69, verses 20 and 21. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Who is that speaking of? Of Jesus Christ. We are all hurt so easily in our faith. I think we need a little bit more thick skin knowing that our Savior Himself was derided and judged and falsely accused. And if that happens because you're a Christ follower, no matter who's doing it to you or around you, you are in great company and you need to cling to Jesus. So that's it. In this early movement of Jesus' life, we see him as the one who, who what, delivers us? One to whom we can call out to and cry out to in our despair and one whom we can cling to when we are despised. And we're just starting to get to know him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for this gospel of Matthew. We have so much to learn in it. Thank you for what you've revealed so far. And Lord, if you brought someone to this service today who needs deliverance, may they know that Deliverance can only come through you, Jesus. And may they call out to you right now and ask you to forgive their sins and come into their lives and be set up your residence as the king on the throne of their lives. And for those of us who have already come to that beautiful place by your providence and your grace where we have seen you as our deliverer, remind us today, Lord, that you continue to deliver us and we rejoice in that truth. Help those who are in despair. Help those who are despised this morning to realize that, Jesus, you understand all that. You know what it's all about. And you have embedded hope in our deepest, darkest, despairing moments. And we cling to you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the season that we are in, the season that we are moving through, and the season we are entering into, Lord. 
With you, Lord, you make all things beautiful in their time. So, Lord, as we continue in worship, may our response now be a blessing. May we not quickly fold up our papers and close our Bibles and think about what's next in our day, but may we ask you, Lord, Holy Spirit, now to inventory our hearts, to see what's there, what needs to be there, what needs to change. And may we respond as would be fitting and that which would bring glory to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.